0: Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Help us to see what you would want us to see from this section of scripture. Guide us, lead us, and we thank you for your love and care. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Second Chronicles chapter 11. In chapter 10, Rehoboam took over the kingship. The people went to him and asked him to reduce their taxes. He said no, that he was going to increase them. They rebelled. He sent in the individual in charge of the tribute they killed him (laughs) and we saw uh, Rehoboam run for his life to get back to Jerusalem that's where we start out at chapter 11 so chapter 11 verse 1 and when Rehoboam was coming to Jerusalem he gathered the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men which were warriors to fight against Israel that he might bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam but the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus saith the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren. Return every man to his house, for this thing is done of me. And they obeyed the words of the Lord and returned from the going against Jeroboam. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, we have Rehoboam. Remember, he had gone up to Shechem to be crowned king. He, reject, he rejected the people's request, and then he ran back, to, you know, drove back to 30 miles back to Jerusalem, because 10 of the 12 tribes had rebelled against him. And so his immediate response was, "I'm going to show them who's boss." <laughs> he goes to get he, he goes to get an army put together. And it uh, says that he raised up an army of 180,000 men from just two tribes, just from Benjamin and Judah. He gathers up an army of 180,000 men, and they were ready to go to war. And he's going to go unify the kingdom. Now, the problem with trying to unify a group that doesn't want to be unified is you've got a pretty big war upon your hands. And he's going to crush this rebellion. He's going to go, his plan is to go kill Jeroboam, bring everybody back into subjection, and put them back under his rule. And as he's getting ready to come out, it says, But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, or a prophet on him. And it says, Speak to Jeroboam, the son of Solomon, and King Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, so in other words, go talk to go make this a very clear statement, and the statement is, you shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren. Now this is quite a statement. How would you like to be the prophet telling the king who's sure that he wants to put everything back together? No, you can't do it. Uh, he could be considered a traitor. He could have been punished, and the thing is, the people actually listened. And God said, for this is done of me. It says, I split the kingdom. And if we remember, we talked last week about the prophecy to, to Solomon because of all of his disobedience to God, The God said, the kingdom will be taken from you. And, this, and, they, and it was given to Jeroboam that he was going to reign over 10 of the 12 tribes and if you remember, we talked about the story that Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam fled to Egypt to get away from the wrath of Solomon. And now he's been made king over the 10 tribes that was going to be his. And Rehoboam now was going to go out and try to kill Jeroboam. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing thing to me is people, will, the in the extremes people will go to when they're in disobedience to God. When they know that what's going to happen is not what they want and they will try everything, including myself, I've done it myself, everything to try to do it their way. So Solomon was going to kill Jeroboam and now we have Rehoboam getting ready to try to kill Jeroboam. And God says, no, this is what I have said will happen. This is... Been organized by me. Now, this is the funny thing about this: that God tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to His purpose. But it doesn't always mean that we're going to like what, what happens that will lead to our good. That verse comes later. Yeah, same process. Same process. <laughs> if you read the old, you read the, read them. They basically say the same thing. Maybe not that exact verse, but they knew. They knew that God was in control. They understood that God was sovereign. They understood that God worked things together, and that God had a plan. They knew all of this. Uh, when, when Paul wrote, you know, Romans eight twenty eight, it wasn't out of the blue, and it wasn't something they had never, never understood. It was just he, he worded it very nice. I like the way he worded it. Uh, you know, but the process and the, and the principle has always been throughout Scripture. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is going to make things happen, and here Solomon didn't like the idea of losing ten of the tribes. Rehoboam doesn't like losing 10 of, the, ten of the ten of the twelve tribes. And if I was king, I probably wouldn't like to lose ten ten of the twelve tribes either. Even if I knew that it was of God, I still would not have liked it. Now, would I have wanted to go to war with the guy? I don't know. I, I'm not going to try to put myself in their place. Uh, every one of us. If we were put in the place of these people, we like to look at them and say, well, I would never have done what they did. Oh, yeah. Only problem is we do those kind of things all the time. So I'm sure that we would have done the same exact thing. Now, I like to think, you know, if I if I have to face martyrdom for Christ, I'd love to just be one of the good first century people and go in there singing and praising God. But I don't know what will really happen if that, you know, happened. I have given up jobs for doing what's right. I have, you know, I've done, I've taken some stance that is of hurt. So I think that I would, but I don't know what's happened until that is faced. And so every time we look at these people and go, well, I would have never been like them. Well, you're probably right. We would have never gone into the fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We would have never gone into the, you know, lion's den like Daniel. We probably never would do the things that the good guys did but we probably would have done everything that these guys have done that is negative. Now, I'd like to hope that we're all going to, you know, take a stance for God. And by his mercy and his grace, we will if we stay focused on him. So, but Rehoboam hears this, and it says they obeyed the words of the Lord. At this point in Rehoboam's life, he is willing to listen to God. He's not happy with listening to God, but he, he and the people get this message, and they go back home. Now, I don't know how long it took him to collect 180,000 men to go to war. doubt uh, of how fast he could have mobilized this army, I would say it would probably have taken at least a week or a week to a month to be able to you know, mobilize 180,000 men in that day and age. Uh, I'm not sure how fast we could mobilize 180,000 men. <laughs> With, with all of our technology and, and transportation and capabilities, it would still take a week or two to mobilize 180,000 men, I think. Um, and that's even with the standing army and military that we have. But he mobilizes these people. The, the prophet comes and he says, this is God's will. Do not go, you will not go to battle. And he stands down. He's willing to listen to God's man, which is, in one sense, quite amazing because he's not one of the best kings of Israel that, that the southern kingdom ever had. And so they all returned and didn't, and didn't go against Jeroboam. Verse 5, And Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for, for defense in Judah, and he even built Bethlehem and Atam and Tekoya and Bethzur, and Shoko, and Adullam and Gath, and Marashah and Ziph, and Adoram, Adoramim, and Lachish, and Azekiah, and Zorah, and Ajalon, and Hebron, which are all in Judah and in Benjamin-fenced cities and he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of food and all and of oil and wine and in every several city he put shields and spears and made them exceedingly strong having Judah and Benjamin on his side so we want to look at this okay he couldn't go to war but he decided that he was going to defend himself and so his, his version of defending himself is that he builds up a whole bunch of cities and fortifies them. He makes them defensive, He takes their walled cities and he increases their defensibility. He goes, okay, if I can't go to war at the very least, I'm going to make sure that I can't be attacked. And if you look at these cities, you know, uh, Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Tekoya, which is just to the north. Uh, you've got Gath, which is over toward the Mediterranean. He's uh, taking all these places and he's building them up to be protected. All right, And this is a wise thing. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if I can't go to war, at least I'm going to make sure that they can't attack me, is his, his attitude. And i very wise. Uh, he's told his people he was going to raise their taxes. And what he probably had to do to build up these defense cities is raise taxes. Now, in this case, though, the people are probably a little willing to because there's a threat. There's a potential threat sitting out there. Another army, another nation that may want to come in and attack us, so they're probably more than willing to make a defensible place. And so they build these up. He makes them strong. And in verse 11, it says, And he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. So in these cities, he gives them provisions. And remember, one of the things that happened is if you were in a fortified city, you usually were very safe from the enemy. They didn't have dynamite and bombs to blow down the walls. They would throw rocks at the wall and throw rocks over the wall. But if you had a strong enough city, that really wasn't your your threat to have your wall knocked down. Your threat was being starved. (laughs) because they would just surround the city and starve you to death until you surrendered. If you didn't ever get get your, you were put under siege. So he made sure that every one of these cities had enough oil and food and all the stuff that they would need in to be able to survive a siege. And then he would be able to gather his people and come in and break the siege was his hope. And this is something that if you read any of the old medieval stories, any of the biblical stories, that's how more of these cities got defeated was they just encircled them. And when Babylon was capturing Jerusalem, he encircled it for three years and starved them. And this happened over and over. They would just circle the city and not let any food and come in. If they could stop water from coming in, it was even better they could block up the, the water supply to it or pollute the water supply, then people would surrender a lot faster than trying to starve them to death. So uh, this is what he's doing. He's preparing. He is preparing for battle. He's being very wise in this, um, very expensive, but <laughs> very, very wise in what he's doing. He puts captains in there. He puts basically, when you put a captain in there, you also have the army that goes with the captain. So each of these cities are now military cities. They're set up for battle. And it says, in every several or distinct city, he put shields and spears and made them exceedingly strong. And it's very interesting in the Hebrew that this word exceedingly is very, very strong. (laughs) All right. So when he says it was exceeding, he's going, it was extremely strong. These These cities named were made up to be as impregnable as he could make them. They had weapons, they had food, they had water, they had army members in there. So basically, he's probably taking most of these 180,000 men that he has and scattering them all across these cities to be able to say, we're going to defend. If anybody attacks us, we are not going to lose. And apparently, from the way they they word this, is that he was very good at setting up his cities for defense. And you know, we kind of think at our time, you know, well, how smart could they be? Well, most of these cities are still uh, standing in many cases. Uh, How many times have you looked at Europe and all the all those castles that were built in the uh, you know 800, 900? AD in 1015 and they're still standing, many of them, and they're still very strong. And the military guys who look at them go, they were very defensible even by today's standards. All right. Uh, When you have a, you know, 8-foot wall, a 10-foot wall, even with our dynamite and our projectiles, uh, it would take a bit of a beating for it to fall down. And these walls were built up, and this is the stuff that he is building. He's building... They say defensible cities, but let's say castles. They're, they're, they're being built up with these huge walls that are, are and inner and outers. And if you study this, it's, it's fun. I, lo- I liked the study of this, uh, the architecture that goes in behind these things. And he was very wise, and he builds these things. He says, I have c- cities that are basically impregnable. And that's what they're saying, very, very strong. And he's looped them all around. You know, you, if you follow the map and look at these places, he has made this big ring of uh, hard-to-defeat cities all around Jerusalem. So any enemy that comes around has to defeat a bunch of cities just to get to Jerusalem. And any one of them can be able to pull people from another place to help out the other ones. So he's been very wise. He's been very organized and trying to set up. He's, he's going, fine, if I can't go to war with them, I'm at least going to make sure that nobody takes any more of my kingdom. And his kingdom's been really shrunk. If you look at the map, I mean, it, it went from having everything from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates, and now all he has is those southern two tribes, basically from Egypt to Jerusalem. Everything else has abandoned him, has left him. The the bulk of the land is no longer his. And so when we look at this map of defense cities, he's put cities everywhere in his territory to be able to defend. Now, one of the other things you want to think of is these defensible cities had where they were positioned had to be close enough to protect the peasants because when an army would attack, people would leave their small towns all around these defensible cities and run to the city. And oftentimes, they would not bring provisions with them. They were running for their lives. So these cities had to be ready to support everybody that was in the city, plus all the people who ran to that city, because that was their, their hope. That hope was to get to the city that's got a big wall around it, uh, because you can only hide so long out in the wilderness. So all of this was his presence. He had cities all over the town, the area for people to be protected. And if we lived in those days, we'd be looking, okay, what's the nearest city with a big wall that if the enemy's coming, I can try to stay ahead of them. And so this is what was coming up. He put these all over the place. Verse 13. And the priest and the Levites that were in all Israel resorted unto him out of out of all their coast, for the Levites left their suburbs and their possessions, and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off off from exe- executing the priest's office in, of, unto the Lord, and he adoy- ordained him priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which he had made, and after them out of the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord and their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong. Three years, for three years, they walked in the way of David and Solomon. So that was confusing to me. So the, uh, the Levites left the lands that they had up in every 10 tribes. Yep. Which is what we're going to build, we're going to talk about that in just right now. Um, so the priest and the Levites left, is, left, left the northern kingdoms. Why? Because the very first thing Jeroboam did was he decided that he really did not want the people of the tribes going to Jerusalem to worship. So the very first thing he did was make two golden calves. Put one up in Dan and one down in Bethel, which was on the way to Jerusalem, and he told the people, these are your gods. All right? So he's changing their religion. And it didn't take him long to go to other gods to worship. He, he didn't stop at golden calf worship. So the priest and the Levites, who had their cities and their towns, remember, they were given towns. They weren't the, the Levites were not given territory for these. They were given certain towns All around Israel and land around them to raise their raise their flocks and their and their uh, and till the ground. When Jeroboam came in and said, "We are no longer going to worship God. We're worshiping these gods." Took them out of their positions, took them out of their little synagogues and temples and stuff, and changed them to worship the foreign gods. The priest and the Levite said, uh, "Adios, Jeremiah, uh, uh, Jeroboam. We're going." We're going to go worship God. Now, I am sure that there were some that didn't do it, but basically most of them are saying, we've been following David, we've been following Solomon, we've been worshiping God, we've been lifted up. We're going to go join the southern kingdom. That was their attitude. And basically it it says just that. In verse 14 it says, And the Levites left their suburbs and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. So they just uh, picked up and left with nothing all right so they left their homes they left their possessions most likely because you're fleeing from technically your king you're now in a new king's territory and if they had tried to pack up and carry their belongings to jerusalem they probably would have been stopped <laughs> because most governments aren't going to let their people just flee the country so they just said okay we're 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 heading out of Dodge. We're, we're headed back to Jerusalem and just left. Probably figuring that somebody in Jerusalem, we're priests and Levites, somebody in Jerusalem will take care of us. Or in, in Judah will take care of us because we're fleeing for the right reason. Or at the very least saying God will take care of us. Uh, they don't tell us exactly what their attitude but it says they left everything. They left their possessions. They had to have faith to leave like that. Had to be, well, faith in God or faith just... Even if it wasn't faith in God, it was the desire that we're going to worship God and not these idols. So we don't know exactly what it is, but I think it was some faith. They had to have some faith that, hey, I'm a prophet of God. I'm not staying here where we're not worshiping God. And so they departed. And they made the the trek from wherever they were in the north. And that, for some of them, it was a pretty good trek because the northernmost one, uh, city for the priests, uh, Levites is up or in the area of Dan and Manasseh, which meant they had to go the entire length of Israel to get to Judah and Jerusalem. But how many miles is that? Kind of uh, 100 or so miles. Lot, yeah. Well, for yeah. them, it's a lot. It's That's a lot. A lot for, them, yeah. for us, we just think, okay, just you know, yeah. get in my car and drive for drive for right. two hours, and I'm I'm out of, I'm out of danger. For them. If you were hustling, you might have covered it in two or three days. But a good day of travel would have been 20 20 miles in a day. So you're looking at at least five days. And most caravans, and it indicates that they weren't in caravans, most caravans only went 10 miles a day. So it would have been about 10 10 days because it took you a long time to break down the the tents of the caravan. And then you started putting them back up. Long before you before nightfall, because you needed your camp, you needed your firewood, you needed your your water, and you needed to prepare. So you only traveled about ten miles, reset up your camp, and then started early the next day, taking everything down, go about ten miles, and re-put up your camp. So ten to fifteen miles, depending on how far the campsites were. That's a lot of work too. A lot of work. You know, you got tired on a caravan, so. These guys left, and they, because they left everything well, they might have been able to do the 20 miles because they're in a hurry. They don't want to stay in this place that is shifting from the worship of God to the worship of idols. And it was done on purpose because Jeroboam's plan, if you read back in Second Kings, was, I can't have my people going to Jerusalem and worshiping because they might decide to bring the nations back together. Just, you know, not take anything. Yeah. Well, Jesus said in the last days, he told the people, when you see these things happening, he goes, don't even go downstairs to get your cloak, get out of Jerusalem. And this is talking to the Jews at the time of the tribulation, but, but there is that time when he says, it's time to just leave. And these Levites said, it's time to leave. Uh, if we don't serve these idols, and it it indicates that there's something going on here. There's more than just we're switching to idols, but I think their lives were were, had been threatened because you don't all of a sudden just pack up and leave in a hurry unless your life is in in danger. So it appears that he's trying to say, I am not going to have the worship of God in my territory at all because those people then, if they're worshiping God, might want to reunify the nation to bring us back together now the problem is God had promised Jeroboam that if he obeyed God and followed after God his dynasty would last forever and the very first thing he does is turn away from God and God brings a judgment on him tells him in two generations or excuse me, three generations your dynasty will end because of the sins that you have done. So we have this going on. And his very first thing is to turn away from God. And obviously, I mean, it doesn't say it anywhere. But it's obvious that he has threatened the priest's lives somehow along this line. Probably with an idea of, well, if you want to be priest to these idols, I'll let you live. If not, you're going to die. They chose to run <laughs> and get away. Because, again, you don't just take off and leave everything behind if there's no, no threat. Uh, yeah, no, some, something has to be there. Even though it doesn't say there has to be something that made them want to run quickly. And then. This, and the right. Cast them off. Stop them from serving. They had, they had nothing to do. That could be, you know, other than run their farms and, you know, run their little farms and, and herd their sheep. But they didn't have their real jobs that they, were, that they wanted to serve God. Purpose. The real purpose to serve God. I mean, they weren't starving. They weren't, they weren't dying because they had their, their fields. Unless he took those away too when he gave, took away. We don't know exactly what Jeroboam did to them. We do know that he basically said, we're not serving your God. And you're not, you're not serving your God in this, in this territory. And so we do know that part. But we don't know, did he threaten their life? Did he pull them out of their properties? What did he do beyond that to make them want to to flee? Because usually, even when things get hard, most people will stay if no other reason than to try to be the witness to try to get people to come back, even if their life is going to be hard. Uh, we see this all over the place. You see this in... China, with the different missionary, uh, different pastors out there, you see it. Uh, if you read the story of um, Watch, Watchman Nee for China, he's always in trouble. You reach Richard Warmbrandt, and uh, um, yeah, nation that he was in. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's kind of fun to read his story because it's very interesting. You would think that these, these people living under these communist rules and dictatorships, that are, their life is forfeit would be hiding and cowering behind the scenes. But no, those people are out there witnessing and sharing God out in the open because they're trusting God. They know that their whole purpose is to try to get people to turn to God. And it happens over and over in each of these places where people just say, I'm going to stick around, my life's in danger, but my whole process is to serve God. And maybe, and just maybe, a revival will break out. Now, oftentimes it doesn't. But, you know, sometimes the revival breaks out when that very bold individual is executed. (laughs) And people go, wow, they they were really ready to follow all the way to death. And then revival can break out. So we don't know. We don't know what happened here. We don't know why they all fled. We don't know if some of them stayed to try to... (laughs) But it indicates that the bulk of them are fleeing to go back to Jerusalem. They want to serve God. Because they've had two generations, 80 years of following after God and being in their position and worshiping God at the tabernacle and and then the temple under Solomon. So they've had plenty of time to say, we want to follow God. And so some of them could just say, well, he's not going to let us obey God, follow God, then we're, we're going down to Jerusalem where we can do it. We're getting there. (laughs) Yeah. We're getting there. Uh, And then it says in verse 15, "He he ordained him priest for the high places. So those are all the temples that Solomon had built for his wives and for devils and for calves, which he had made. So he is putting idols all over the place. And he's not just doing the golden calf, which he's known for. All right. But he's all the different gods, uh, Gamesh, Moloch, all these gods are being set up. He's basically saying, okay, I don't want you following Yahweh, but we're going to give you many, many gods. Take your pick which one you want, as long as it's not him. This is the funny thing. Even in our day and age, you can be almost anything you want to be unless unless it's a Christian or a follower of God. If you go and follow God and say there's a standard, there's right, there's wrong, then all of a sudden you are attacked, you are picked on, you are you know, isolated. You, know, you can worship any other God out there, you can worship anything else, but as soon as you turn to worship God, there's a problem. And you know, it's kind of interesting, you read the papers, where well, those Christians, they all have persecution pro- uh, complexes. Well, unfortunately we are being picked on. We are being attacked. And we're being attacked when no others are being attacked. And yes, there's a general idea of against religion, but the only one that really has any true beliefs is Christianity. We hold a set of beliefs that cannot be altered. And it's very funny to me because these other religions and the idea of let's be ecumenical, let's all be one, will give up what they believe to be one with others. And then the sad thing is how many Christian churches have given up God's word, God's truth, so that they can be at peace with the other churches, which then makes it more difficult for those churches that are holding on to God's word, that will not compromise his word, and people will go, and believe me, I've had this done to me. Well, you believe such and such. Yep, that's what God says. Well, why does that church not believe? I go, you have to go talk to them why they don't believe God's word. I'm going to hold on to God's word. And this is the problem that we have out there is people are giving up on absolute truth even in the churches just so they can be not persecuted and be accepted. And this has happened over the years, many, many decades, every millennia. It happens frequently. They sacrifice God's word to be accepted. And we cannot sacrifice God's word. We must hold on to it. These these uh, priests and Levites did not sacrifice God's word. They, they were willing to give up all that they had and go to Jerusalem rather than sacrifice. And yet, how many other people in those, in those areas gave up? And you've got to think, it was a pretty big deal for these people anyway to go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship. And again, let's go back to the fact that it takes on a caravan anywhere from, you know, five to seven days just to get to Jerusalem. And three times a year, every male was to go to Jerusalem, which meant at best it's a two-week journey, there and back. That meant for two weeks you left your family, you left your home, you left your farm, you left your business, went to Jerusalem, offered a sacrifice for one day, and went back home three times a year. And here's Jeroboam saying, hey, I've got a temple right here around the corner. All you got to do is go worship at that temple. You don't have to lose two weeks worth of work. You don't have to lose two weeks worth of time. Just stick right here. How many people jumped at the chance saying, well, it's not really, the, really God of, of us, but hey, it's a God and the king's approving of it. We're going we're gonna to do it. It is so easy to justify sin, you know, and we do it frequently ourselves. You know, well, God, if, God, you just have to understand. I know you're full of grace and mercy. You know, and things are just so bad, you know, or or God, you understand why this happens. And we've either done it or know somebody who's done it, and all of us have justified our sin at some point in in time. You know, uh, God, if you just really looked at my situation you'd know that this is this is the best thing for me and God's saying well no I know your situation better than you know your situation follow my laws and here the northern kingdom is being given an opportunity to not to not follow God's laws or follow his laws and in this case the king is all for them not obeying God's laws and the the bulk of the population apparently is for not following God's laws and this is a thing that really is something we have to consider. When I look through the scriptures, when I look at history, how often is the majority wrong? And sad thing is, I don't think I can think of a single place in the scriptures where the majority was right. All right. And yet we run a government in America which is run by democracy, people picking and choosing and too many times the majority picks and chooses the wrong people. Our country runs on public opinion, and public opinion is reigned by people who are unrighteous who don't care about God. And we keep getting darker and darker in this country and more and more sinful in in our desires and the way we're going, and at some point, God will judge our country. But it's not just our country because we were very successful to get democracy in a lot of the world and the world that has democracy is all fallen fallen down because democracies technically do not work. Our founding father said democracies will work until the people realize the politicians realize they can buy the vote. And how do our politicians run their elections right now? Vote for me and I will give you. You know, fill in what they're going to give you. This last time it was free education, free medical, you know, free everything, you know, uh, for debt, you know, forgiveness of your school debts and all these things and everybody's going, yeah, yeah, we want that. Uh, forget the fact that they have all these ungodly positions as well. And we as Christians need to be able to come down and say, when we vote, we need to vote for people who agree with the word of God, even though it's not going to be popular. And if we're not going to vote according to God's word, then we are in trouble. And I can't ever tell you who to vote for, but, you know, when I look at them and say, okay, does somebody believe God's word? You know, they have policies that match God's word. Then I'm going to vote for them. If they don't, I'm not going to vote for them. Plain and simple. Now, will I find somebody who agrees 100% with me on everything I think about God's word? I wish. (laughs) But vote for the people that are righteous, that are godly, that are going to say, I stand for what God stands for. And we have this problem here, and the people are leaving. And then, verse 16: and after them, after the prophet, after the uh, Levites and the priests, out of the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah. So you have the priest abandoning the northern kingdom. And then all the people who want to follow God leave the northern kingdom. Jeroboam has a problem. He's losing all of his righteous people. And I can almost imagine that, you know, you know border, border war going on, he, except his border was to keep people in the country, not out of the country. So he's got people wanting to leave his country And he's probably putting his troops at every road and every way to stop these people from leaving the country because that's been his fear. These people are going to... And what it says here, they went to Jerusalem to worship. His very deep fear that people were going to go to Jerusalem and want to reunify the nation is what he accomplished through all of this. And they're going to Jerusalem on the context, on the pretext of going to worship God and basically not coming back. So that they're staying in Judah. And it says they strengthened Judah, and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was made strong. And then it says, three years, for three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. This is the history for Rehoboam. For three years he followed God. Now he's going to reign. For a lot longer, but he for, for the first three years, he is following God, and getting the blessings of God. And then and he's going. Start strong, and then they finish. Unfortunately, so many times people start out strong and do not, do not finish strong. And this is what is going to happen. You know, Rehoboam is going to reign for 17 years. 14 of which is not following God, three years of it is following God. And this is something that has really bothered me over the years. My goal and my prayer is God, let me finish well. I do not want to be one of the many people who drift away from God as they get older and, and start, you know, getting lazy or whatever the case might be. I want to finish well. And and many of these kings, that's exactly what happened to them. They started out right. They started out good. And then drifted away as they started, I guess, under, you know, living under their own, you know, uh, listening to their own uh, good news and good, good th- tidings and deciding, well, look what all I've done and, and drift away from God. So he starts out, and for three years, he's a godly king following after God. And a lot of it's going to be the fact that he's going to have war with Jeroboam for all of his all of his time. There's constant war going on between the the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And I can almost understand. He's probably some of his prayers. God, you know, look, I'm being good, I'm being godly, and I'm still being under attack. There's still all these problems, and you said you caused all this, you know, to happen. And how often do we start drifting away from God when we look and say, all these bad things are happening. We look at Job. You know, Job kept getting beat up by his friends, and it kind of is not a surprise, that, but he started complaining back as well. You know, God, if I just had an opportunity to stand before you and, and make my case, everything would be okay. And you would understand that I'm, I don't deserve all of this. And I can picture Rehoboam sitting there year after year, being attacked, and going to God and saying, God, don't you care? Don't you, don't you understand? Not looking at the blessings that are happening. And we always need to be very, very careful that we're not judging God's position on us <laughs> and saying, God, I just don't understand why you're letting all this stuff happen. And I understand, you know, uh, as we get older, it can get easy. I can't do half the things I want to do. I don't have the strength I used to have, and I'm still young. You know, and, still, and and looking at things going on and saying, you know, how hard is it when you can't do the things that you want to do? And you start looking at it and saying, it's all God's fault. <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> don't, don't go and blame God, because God just lived up whatever God is allowing you to do. And there's times, and I've seen it, Uh, When pastors need to step down and let somebody else take over because they just don't have the strength to do what they need to do and I've seen it on two occasions where pastors have kept going and kept going and kept going and their strength is down their study time is down and their cognitive powers are down (laughs) and they start giving some very strange messages at times and you're wondering okay, we need a new pastor in this place because this pastor is losing it. <laughs> They're losing their marbles. <laughs> and, it, and I can understand it would be very hard. You've built a church. You know. God has used you in such great ways and being able to step down and saying, okay, I want a secondary position. One of the hardest things to do for us is to step down from the spotlight and step back into you know, the secondary place and saying, let me just help advise. Let me help in whatever way I can. And it can be tough. All right. So we have all these people strengthening him. Verse 18. And Rehoboam took him Mahathah, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, to wife, and Abahiah, the daughter of Eli- Eliab, the son of Jesse, which bore him children, Jeush and Shammiah and Zerham, And after he took... Mahakah the daughter of Absalom which bore him Abijah and Atai and Zizi and Shelomith and Rehoboam loved Mahakah the daughter of Absalom above all of his wives and his concubines. He took 18 wives and and 60 concubines and begat 28 sons and 60 daughters. (laughs) Just a small family. And Rehoboam made Abijai, the son of Mahakav, the chief, to be ruler among his brethren, for he thought to make him king. And he dealt wisely and dispersed, them all, uh, dispersed all of his children throughout the, all the country of Judah and Benjamin unto every fenced city, and he gave them food in abundance, and he desired many wives. Yeah. All right. So here's Rehoboam following into the same problem that David and Solomon had. He liked too many women. <laughs> and so he's going to fall into this. Now, he didn't take near as many as his father Solomon did. Uh, Solomon ended up with a 1,000 wives and concubines. He's, he's only ending up with, uh, what was it, 78 wives and concubines. Still too many. Uh, but it says he married these individuals and he married abaka and he gives birth to these individuals, and Abijah was, his, was the one that he says, I'm going to set him up to be the king. And we're going to find out that he does become king. So he does, goes through all of this, and he loved Mahakah the most, above all of his wives and concubines. So out of the 78 women that he had at his disposal, he had the one that he truly loved, that he loved the most. And I can't even imagine that he ends up with sixty-eight kids. That's like a lot of kids. And you know, when you think about it though, he's got he's got uh, seventy-eight wives, so it's really not that many kids. Wives and concubines. So he's you know, he's not a whole lot of kids considering how many, you know, women he has at his disposal. But it is a lot of kids. <laughs> and predominantly females. And mostly females, yes. It was, it's kind of an amazing number. I, I kinda noted that one too. He's he's Got uh, twice as many girls as he does boys (laughs) out of this deal, Uh, and then so he decides that Abijah is going to be his heir uh, apparent, his crown prince. Um, Apparently, because he took two other wives first, who had sons, who had children before this one, he's probably not the oldest boy uh, in this whole list, and. He's going to make Abijah his crown prince. So he does something that's very interesting that they note in here. Uh, in verse 23, it says, He dealt wisely or prudently with and he dispersed all of his children throughout the country of Judah and Benjamin. Now he is taking his twenty-eight sons and scattering them across the across the land. This is kind of an interesting point. I'm sure what he's probably telling people, well, if I lose Jerusalem, I won't lose the entire royal family. I think it's more political than that. He's saying, I'm going to get rid of all these boys. They're all going to have their own city to be in charge of. And he sent them to all the different defensible cities and says, you are now the prince. You're going to rule this city. It's going to be yours and he gave them food in abundance and he gave them wives as well. So he's saying I'm scattering up all my kids and they're and they're going to be in charge of these cities. But what was the big practical advantage of this? There weren't a bunch of brothers getting together and complaining about Abijah being the the crown prince. All right? They went, well, dad really favors him better. We got to go take care of him. So he got rid of all of that Potential jealousy and being able to group together scattered them all across the kingdom and gave them very big jobs to do Put them in charge of cities I'm sure he expected the tax money to come in from them and he put them in charge of these areas He gave them lots of food to be able to support themselves and live lavishly All right that way they're not too bothered by the fact that they're not crowned prince They get to have all the parties they want because they've got plenty of food and being given to them and all they have to do is take care of a, take care of a city, which, which if you laid that right from him, his point of view, this is your chance to prove to me that you can get the job done, take care of the city, get good taxes, make sure that we don't lose the city, show me that you are a good, good prince. So he's being able to challenge them. They're not able to get together in little kabads and say, you know, we need to go take care of this brother so that we can be... Be king because that is something, and we don't really think about this. But this is what happened, especially back then. They would come against the crown prince. Now, if they saw any weakness in him, they would kill him in his sleep, arrange for him to be assassinated, so that they could be then moving up the ranks to the next, next slot up, slot up. And this happened frequently. So he's scattering his people away. Just look at all the problems David had with his children. He had two of his children literally rebel and take the kingdom from him. And then he had to then come take it back from them. And so here, Rehoboam being very wise. He's saying, I'm going to put them in charge of cities. I'm going to give them lots of food. There's not going to be any want. And then Basically, I think he also gave them instructions to run these cities well. You know, give them the idea that maybe if you do really good, you might be able to impress me enough to be be the crown prince someday. Well, that probably makes them feel good because they're in charge of the city, too. That's the whole thing. He made them feel good about what they were doing. He gave them something to do. He made them part of the defense system. He made them part of these things, and he gave them, says, food in abundance. And that meant that they could have parties. They could live the wild life that they wanted to. And But now they weren't around Abijah. Abijah, I'm sure, stayed in Jerusalem to learn from his father how to run that nation. And Abijah is going to be the next king of the southern kingdom. And so he gives him all of this. And he says he desired many wives. So he he was very much like David and and Solomon both uh, making a collection of wives and concubines and I don't know why these guys gathered so many wives you know uh, one is plenty <laughs> the only part that you did, you didn't follow David, like you said, he separated the kids so they wouldn't be yeah. jealous or... well at least not be able to gang up on their brother yeah. They'll be able to not gang up on their brother and be where he's at so this is, this is the problem because Absalom killed one of his brothers by gathering, inviting him to a feast and then killing him. Uh, this has happened many times and all through history. You see this happen where princes start killing other princes. And if you were the, in Herod the Great's day, uh, every time his son showed any promise, he killed his son. So he was, he was just as bad as any of the princes. He would kill off his sons. Jealousy amongst kids, jealousy amongst uh, rulers, and our history is full of that kind of picture. So we see here a turning away from God in Jeroboam, even though he's kind of a small character in this this book, uh, but we do see his turning away in, in 2 Kings. And we see that out of 17 years, Rehoboam served God for three. Now, it doesn't tell us how fast he turned away from him, but by the end of the 17 years, he's not following God, and it probably started during the first three years that he didn't follow God. But he did not finish well. He started well. He started in a way that might have kept the kingdom and may have even, with Jeroboam's disobedience, if he had followed God, might eventually have joined the kingdoms back together if he had been obedient and we'll never know because he wasn't. But you know, it's so amazing that if people would just understand the grace of God and his love, how many times has judgment fallen because people have not continued to seek God? And only God knows what would have happened if something had happened differently. I always think back, what would have been different about Adam and Eve if they had actually stood up before God and said, God, we have messed up. Don't you know, give us grace, you know, give us grace and mercy. But they didn't. They immediately started doing what all people do, making excuses. Now, Adam's excuse was really good. God, it's your fault, and it's her fault. You know, I, Adam didn't take any part of the blame at all. He pointed to both God and, and her. God, God it's the woman you gave me. <laughs> and I'm just the innocent bystander that if you hadn't given her to me, I would have never fallen. <laughs> So, God is really not just her fault, but it is your fault. Uh, yeah, he was bold. <laughs> and Eve just said, No, it's a serpent's fault. <laughs> I think if they had actually just turned to God and repented, much would have been different. Well, not eating in the tree it was the only law they had one rule, and they couldn't keep that one. You walk by the tree and go, Wonder why I can't eat of that tree? It doesn't look that bad. Yeah, it looks good. And then next day they get a little closer to the tree. And it smells good. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what, I'm sure that's exactly what happened because that's when Satan met Eve. And you know what they were thinking. I wonder why this tree is the one tree we can't eat of. Because I can't have it, it looks the best. And isn't that true? Anything we can't have looks better than what we do have until we eat of that thing that we can't have and realize that what we had was better than what we what we thought we were going to get. And that is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. It looks good, smells good. Serpent is telling me that it's really good. (laughs) Why they would listen to the serpent, I have no idea, but they're listening to that. And being ready to disobey God. And yet, how many times do we do exactly the same thing? Because it amazes me as I talk to people, and usually their question is, Something along, how close, it boils down to how close to this sin can I get before I have sinned? Can I do this? (laughs) And the sad thing is, why do we want to get close to sin in the first place? And I went to the Grand Canyon, we went to the remote primitive area, and a couple of my kids who have no fear of height like I do, stood right on the edge looking down into the cavern. I'm, and I'm I'm not afraid of heights, but I'm looking at the ground they're standing on, which was full of gravel. And I'm going, get away from the edge, but I'm not afraid of it. I go, I'm not afraid of it either, but you're standing on gravel. (laughs) It's a dumb place to be standing. Now, when we took him back to where it's fenced, I allowed him to lean over the, the fence, but that's a different story because the fence would give them that protection. But how many times do people, and even ourselves, Try to go, how close to sin? How much, can I, how much can I tempt myself before I fall into the sin? And those are the very people that say, I don't know how I fell into this sin, found myself in this sin. You know, well, I wonder, did it have anything to do with all the movies you were watching and the books you were watching and, and all the precarious places you put yourself into? And we need to be very careful. How close do we get to this? Adam and Eve should have stayed as far away from that tree as they possibly could and said, we're not going anywhere near that tree. We're going to keep a football field distance from it. (laughs) Because if we can't even barely see it, then there's no chance that we'll ever want it. Satan's downfall, he wanted to be like God. It's a very interesting thing. We need to be very careful of that because our temptation is still to be like God, to know things that we don't know. Many religions are built upon just that. Let me teach you how to know your special knowledge of God that you can only know if you follow our way of thinking. All the religions do something like that. If you get just far enough, you do just the right things, we will give you, we'll tell you, we'll teach you how to have special knowledge about God. And unfortunately, there's even Christian churches that try to have this idea that you know if you just do certain things and you'll have a special relationship with God and He will give you special words that you can't get from just reading the Bible. I'm going to tell you right now: if anybody gives you that kind of a message, they're giving you the wrong message. It's got to come from the Word of God. Now we can explain the Word of God a little clearer, maybe, but you know we can. If it's going beyond what the Word says, it's not gospel it's not truth and we need to be very careful about that no special knowledge and this is what is very important there you know you can have dreams and visions about God but if it goes against what the Bible says they're not they're not from God and we see this all the time that people go well I have this dream I have this vision and you listen to it and go and hold it that doesn't match up to the Bible your, your dream your vision is not from God And we need to be able to understand that if it's not from God, it is not worth following. Period. And this is why I'm telling everybody, we need to always be good Bereans. Go back to the scriptures and say, is what's being said scriptural? Because any place that is not scriptural is a deadly place to be. Because it's headed the wrong way. And it doesn't take a lot of poison to kill you. All right, And if we start poisoning the gospel, it will eventually take us down the wrong path. So always go back to the word. Always go back to the word. And say, does this match what God says? And be able to stand on it. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we go about your business. Help us to live for you. Make godly decisions. And to stand strong for you and to finish well. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell.